This podcast, The Two Mats, is sponsored as ever by the New European Newspaper. And we've got a very special subscription offer for you, a new one, where you can get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. That's right, you heard that right, folks. It's a burgundy, like vegan leather, beautifully designed passport cover. Pleather. To, to have pleather, that's what, that's what they call it, isn't it? Pleather. To hide your um, new British blue. The shame of the, the blue shame, The shame passport. of the blue passport. And you can get your free bollocks to Brexit passport cover free with a subscription to the New European from just £1 a week. So to take this fantastic offer, and trust me, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the New European, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, and there's a link in the show notes. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hi, this is James Ball. I write every week in the New European on what's happening behind the scenes in Westminster and across the world. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Hello, Snowflakes, and welcome back to the New European podcast. My name is Steve Anglesey. I'm the editor of the New European. We have got a special offer on new subscriptions to the New European for listeners of this podcast. It's the great price of just £1 a week for digital or £2 a week for print and digital. Just go to theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast and you can get a whole year of the New European for £52 for an annual digital subscription or £104 for an annual print and digital subscription. What do you get for a pound a week for new digital subscribers? You get unlimited articles on our website and our app. You get the latest digital edition of our award-winning newspaper and five years of digital back issues, plus weekly emails from the New European. And for £2 a week, you get all that too, and the award-winning, beautifully designed print edition of the New European. So, theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast, where new subscribers can join us from just £1 a week for digital or £2 a week for print and digital. Coming up on this week's podcast, are we heading for a food crisis? We will talk to Minette Batters, President of the National Farmers Union, about worrying signs from Ukraine and the worrying things that have been happening here. 
And as the local elections give us a referendum on Boris Johnson, what would an honest Tory slogan be at the next general election? Your thoughts on that? Then, of course, more blowhard backbenchers, malevolent ministers, putrid pundits heading into our hall of shame. Now, as I'm recording this, I don't know who won the local elections. It's probably going to be Labour. It might be the Tories after Wednesday night as a Man City fan. I'm half expecting it to be Real Madrid with two goals in the last minute. But let's finish that thought. One phenomenon in the local elections that I very much enjoyed is the idea of local conservatism. Like the leaflets that the Tories sent out in Hartlepool, they said... Please don't punish local Conservatives for the mistakes made in Westminster. We are local and proud of where we live. Well, hang on. What mistakes in Westminster were these? I thought the public were all focused on Boris Johnson getting all the big calls right and delivering all the people's priorities. Do you mean that Conservatives are actually admitting there have been some mistakes along the way? And have these Hartlepool local Conservatives actually met the other Conservatives in the first place? Are they doing things very differently from the other Conservatives that we all know? Is there no national insurance rise in Hartlepool, for instance? Are the fuel bills lower in Hartlepool because Hartlepool Council have put a windfall tax on big energy used in the borough of Hartlepool? Who is the leader of the Hartlepool local Conservatives? Is it still Boris Johnson, who's useless and a liar, or is it somebody like Dame Judi Dench or David Attenborough or Jesus Christ? Setting aside all that, it's an exciting precedent for other organisations with presentational difficulties, isn't it? In fact, I've just got a couple of late local election leaflets through the post, and I'll read them to you now. Please don't punish local spectre for the mistakes made in killing James Bond's wife in Switzerland. We are local and proud of the hollowed-out volcano where we live. And the other one says, please don't punish local Daleks for the mistakes made on Scaro and all our other attempts to exterminate Doctor Who over the last 59 years. We are local and proud of where we live, even if we can't go upstairs. All this, you might have thought, is a bit of a cheat from the local Hartlepool Conservatives. How would they feel if the boot was on the other foot and central office started mailing everyone in the area saying... Please don't punish national conservatives for the mistakes made in Hartlepool. We are national and proud of where we live and proud of our record of never hanging a monkey in the mistaken belief that it was a French spy. So with the local elections out of the way, and there'll be more about them on the next New European podcast, let's look to the general election that's under two years away now. We asked New European podcast listeners what would be an honest conservative slogan at the next general election. Marcus said, for the few, not the many. David Pollard said, a snappy three-word slogan, lies, corruption, despair. Raymond Duck, with Partygate in mind, says, hands, space, get off your face. Chris Mariano Marshall said, one nation, damnation. Sarah Bright says, take back control from yourself and give it to us. Ali Moorcroft says, let them ride buses. John Burt says, bend over, we'll take care of you. David Barron says, a good slogan would be, we tell the best lies. John Speller said, I can't believe it's not better. Janet Anscombe said, you can trust us to look after the things that really matter to us. Jackie Kenton says, take us back, it will be different this time, I promise. And Ben Cleverclogs says, 
the best Tory slogan for the next general election should be, this is going to hurt. Now, before we go to Minet Batters, I want to remind you about a special series of podcasts from the New European. On the night between November 23rd and November 24th, 33 people were trying to stay alive in the English Channel. They were in a tiny inflatable, too many of them, and it was deflating. They called for help over and over again, but nobody came to help them. By morning, they were dead. This was the worst tragedy of its kind, and it took place in one of the world's busiest shipping routes between two of the world's richest countries. In the days that followed, we learnt more about the people who died, men, women and a young child, but their stories were soon eclipsed. First, there was a political row over who was responsible for the deaths. Then the story faded away, to be overtaken by government scandals and the coronavirus pandemic. The new European has spent a month retracing the journeys of some of those who perished. Where did they come from? Why did they leave? What drew them to Britain? And why did they have to die when the ships that could have saved their lives were so close? In this three-part series, we tell their stories because they deserve to be told. And we ask, what can be done to fix a system that's so inhumane? The whole series of The 27 is now available to stream or download in the same new European feed where you found this episode. And if you want to support us to do more brilliant journalism like The 27, please subscribe. The neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast is where you'll get your discount subscription for new subscribers. Now joining us is Minette Batters, a farmer from Wiltshire. Minette is president of the National Farmers Union. She's been a fierce critic of the implications for farmers from the government's Brexit deal and subsequent trade deals with the likes of Australia and New Zealand. But the crisis now facing farmers and the rest of us goes far beyond just the mismanaged way in which we have left the EU. So welcome, Minette. This this podcast talks a lot about the government's deal with the EU and how that and the trade deals have made things very difficult for many British farmers. And we will get to that. But I really wanted to start with where you start in this amazing piece that you've written for us um, in this week's issue of the New European. I mean, you start with Ukraine and the, the terrible damage that's been done to Ukraine, which is really overturned our notions about feeding a growing world population what's what's happening to farmers in ukraine and why are the ramifications of all of that so devastating for the ukrainians but obviously for the world beyond well thanks so much firstly for having me on i i have formed a, a really good relationship with the ukrainian agrarian forum which represents farmers as we do here um in ukraine and i mean it's it's sort of beyond belief what is going on out there. Farms like my farm, it, it looks identical, uh, actually, that the, the footage that I'm seeing. And these farms are in the middle of nowhere. They have no Ukrainian protection and the Russians have singled them out. They've been bombed. There are cows lying dead in, in barns. There are cows wandering around the roads. There are buildings that are just obliterated. There are 
mines and bombs in fields with spring barley coming up through them. It's a, a life's work just completely in tatters and it's a deliberate attack on farmers and food security for Ukraine and the rest of the world. And, you know, a large part of, of what I am trying to get across is not only the challenges that we face here in the UK and globally, but the plight of farmers and food producers in Ukraine. It's it's horrendous. They've mined, the Russians have mined the ports. So 98% normally of Ukraine's exports of grain would go out um, via shipping routes. Anything that leaves the country is having to go out by rail. That isn't the infrastructure to get the volume out. In many cases in the occupied territories, the Russians are saying, this is now our land. You can sow your crops, but this is Russian land. So you will be growing it for us. Um, the Ukrainian Agrarian Forum talks of many examples of Russia just, just driving grain away, just loading grain up onto lorries and taking it away. So it's it's a very, very horrendous situation, I would say, out in Ukraine for farmers at the moment. And where would those where would those grain exports be going normally? Ukraine and, and Russia together feed um, a, a large proportion, effectively, of, of the world, and particularly sort of very fragile economies. I mean, mm. as an example, Eritrea is 100% reliant on Russian grain. We know that there are not enough grains in North Africa to get through to the next harvest. We know the situation in the Middle East is extremely serious. And, you know, the Global Hunger Index report has said that 2021... Uh, there were 47 countries that have higher levels of hunger and is warning that this will rise to over 60 countries. So it poses a massive um, and unprecedented global risk to very, very fragile parts of our, our world and with very fragile populations that have become extremely reliant. Um, Europe is very reliant on Ukrainian poultry meat. They are the, the breadbasket, if you like. They are big producers. And I mean, there's, you talk about an issue with with something that I've not really thought about before, which is nitrogen fertilizer as well. What's just explain that? So a lot of the issues that that we are facing at the moment are really connected to to gas and the price of, of gas and, and fertilizer. Nitrogen fertilizer is, is a classic example of that. So nitrogen fertilizer is is really about. Um, increasing yield. So it can double the, the yield that you are producing, the use of it. So our global population has become actually very, very reliant on uh, the role of nitrogen fertilizer. Now, Russia is, is a massive producer and exporter of nitrogen fertilizer. It stopped exporting it two months before they invaded Ukraine. And so they have effectively taken their supply off of the world market. Now, volumes of fertilizer are okay at the moment, but we should be under no illusions that if you take Russia out and Ukraine out of the fertilizer market, it is going to leave a shortage for next year. So here in the UK, we have two fertilizer plants. One is producing fertilizer at 60% capacity. The other is mothballed. I think there is a real case to be made for, for government now that actually they should be turning that other plant on and we should be producing fertilizer here in the UK while the cost of, of gas is more affordable than it was. And to make the most of that gas before we go into the winter and it is needed elsewhere, we really have to prepare 
um, and make sure that we are playing our part so that the UK should not be drawing anything off of the world market, that is for certain. I mean, this is all extremely worrying and, and uh, you know, costs, you you talk about the nitrogen fertiliser bill for your farm being, I mean, it was something like £9,000 last year and, and, and now you're looking at it being 30-odd thousand pounds, a, a, a huge rise. Obviously, that is going to point to, in Britain, that's going to point to food becoming much more expensive and and... You know, who who knows what the consequences of the, of this are for for Eritrea? Are we are we close to a, a a global food crisis? I think it was very interesting what the World Bank said last week. If if we manage this and we work together, uh, we can we can potentially avoid this. But you know, the the key message that they were promoting was that. We must, um, as the developed nations, where we have the ability to be um, producing grain, we must up uh, what we're producing. There is a real need to keep supply um, supply high so that we are not contracting. And my concern at the moment, um, particularly uh, here in the UK and in Europe, is that potentially farmers look to shore up their risk by contracting their business. Now, we're already seeing that happening in poultry production, in egg um, production. There's a, a real danger that farmers will go from producing milling wheat for bread, which is planted in the autumn um, and does need far more um, use of, of nitrogen fertilizer. It needs far greater investment to, to get the yield and to get the quality that they actually pivot and say, right, I'm going to cut my costs out and I'm going to produce feed wheat. So this needs careful management. It needs global leadership. I am yet to see who the global leader in this conversation is, but uh, I think Europe needs to do much more. I think the UK has a, a real opportunity to provide that level of leadership on food security. And if we, we don't, we are, we are headed for trouble. There is no doubt in my mind about it. Well, we can talk about leadership in just a second. I mean, let's just explore the ramifications of, 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 of even the, the nitrogen fertiliser rise that, that you're facing, because obviously that cost needs to be passed on somewhere. There are other costs that we know uh, are going to be passed on, the cost of heating and light and all of that kind of stuff, just, just for a start. It all points to food becoming much more expensive. You say in your piece that, you know, food is, is much less expensive than it, than it used to be. Um, but, but if the price of food is going up now and it keeps going up, is there a point at which this just becomes uneconomic for consumers and, and, and therefore for producers? What, what kind of things are, are, are likely to become so expensive that, that people stop buying them, do you think? I think, you know, there are there are many challenges in all of this and, and many people have heard the, the prime minister commenting on, you know, how costly uh, chicken had become. Mm. Obviously, Chicken has been an affordable protein for, for most households for a very long time. It's been a huge success story here in the UK, but it's it's multifaceted, the costs and, and the costs are certainly um, not just linked to fuel. The costs are, are very much linked to water, to labour availability. Mm to energy in general, and all of those costs, of course, coming into feed um, as well. So 
there's a lot of things driving um, these costs at the moment. And the challenge for the farmer or the grower is, you know, if they can't pass those costs on, they are facing the same cost of living challenges as everybody else. They will not keep producing. They will not be able to keep producing well below the cost of production. So they need to pass those costs on. There's then a challenge, I think, with affordability. You know, there's a limit to how much people will be prepared to pay for a pack of tomatoes, for pears, for apples. Um, so that I think that's the critical issue. And that potentially is, is why we might need to look at, at intervening in the gas market to give farmers the confidence that they can keep producing. They must keep producing the same volume and to allow food to stay affordable. But I can't underestimate, we have a savage retail price fall that we have lived with for a long time now. That is now a very, very challenging marketplace. We can't intervene in the market. You can never have a conversation about price. So you have the discounter model, which, which is discounting, because that's what the discounters do. They discount. Tesco's obviously has to keep pace with the discounters. So that that is really holding the price back totally understandable because everybody wants to make sure that consumers have affordable food but i think we've also got to focus at how we keep volume of supply going forward so the challenged areas are to keep farmers producing milling wheat for bread um, the protected crop sector which is tomatoes aubergines cucumbers and so on that are really grown undercover um, we do not want to see contraction there. There's a labour cost there. There's a gas cost there that is extremely volatile. It hit six pounds only a couple of months ago from an average of 63p. Then we've got the challenges for poultry production, poultry meat and eggs and pigs. And of course, everybody knows the huge challenges we've had in the pig sector. Mm. Um, red meat, um, beef and lamb production will be predominantly driven by affordability for consumers and then, of course, there's dairy. We've all, already seen contraction in uh, the dairy sector, less liquid milk coming on the market. We really need to make sure that dairy farmers are getting a fair price for their milk so that we keep the volume coming through. Otherwise, the danger is that we see double digit contraction and that will make everything much worse. Now, all of this obviously calls for leadership and it calls for radical and, and quick action. I mean, clearly you're negotiating with, with, with the government all the time and talking to the government all the time, but, but, but bearing in mind what farming has experienced from dealing with this government in, over the last couple of years, since you know, the, the break with the, the EU was final, what, what needs to change? I was really pleased to see that finally the, the government has um, committed to an energy strategy. Um, I find it appalling beyond belief that we still don't have a food strategy. I find it incredibly shocking how much food has become totally taken for granted. Um, we can buy it 24 seven whenever we want, but we really do need to take food security seriously. It's something that I, at the NFU have been talking about for, for years now, the importance of food security. Um, this is shining a light like never before on the food system. And we really do need a food strategy in place. This government has legislated targets on nature, on trees, 
on species reintroduction. Those are all incredibly important things that farmers very much want to be part of. But I find it incredible that they have legislated in these areas and there is nothing on food, nothing on food production or food security to say, actually, we must commit to the 60% self-sufficiency where we are now. And in other areas, we ought to look to grow it. You need a strategy in order to do that. You need to develop the policy and the ambition. And I hope that the thinking will change, but it's been the hardest struggle in the world to get something that should be blindingly obvious to a government. Uh, we are an island nation, 16 million people in this country. That is a lot of people to feed. And why would we not be looking to shore up our resilience, especially in light of what is going on in Ukraine? I mean, you mentioned some intervention in, in food prices. What else would be part of this comprehensive strategy on maintaining food supplies what would it look like and what would farmers have to do to be part of that I think the point is that you need to plan I was um, in Europe last week and had a meeting with our Danish counterparts and they have invested um, three and a half billion in uh ground source heat pumps for glasshouses to avoid um, using Russian gas. I mean, that is the entire budget for the United Kingdom for the, for the farming policy. And, and that is just going into one sector to solve one problem. Wow. I think, you know, the whole point of having uh, a food strategy would be to look at actually the short term, what we need to do right here, right now, what we need to do in the midterm, what we need to do in the longer term to build resilience into the food system just relying on Europe and the rest of the world is is hugely mistaken I mean Spain has got really challenging weather conditions at the moment as an example we're not seeing uh, the salad coming in from Spain that we should be we've got huge issues here on labour requirements and all the costs involved with these rising input costs so it's it's really looking at how the industry comes together we we've got I think something very special here in the UK from farm to fork, you know, we have a lot of investment in our supply chains. We know consumers want to be able to buy more British. And our ask is simply, you know, to work with government on a comprehensive food strategy that really does deliver on food security for this nation. And I was part of Henry Dimbleby's work that is sort of back sitting on a shelf again at the moment. But if, if there were any criticism I had of that, it missed out two things. One was focusing on resilience, so energy being a big part of that. Resilience in the food system, really making sure that we are uh, committing to that self-sufficiency figure and, and producing more where, where possible. And the other one was water. Again, we take water for granted. We have diffuse water that is just disappearing into the North Sea. A lot of the world is going red. So there are many reasons why we need a strategy, but it could not be more pressing than now. But it will require quite a U-turn, won't it? Because, you know, I mean, part of, I think, part of, of what people were told in, in 2016, part of, part of what your members were told in 2016 was that they would be able to sell more for higher prices, while other people were, the rest of the country was, was told that they would still be able to receive, a, you know, a great cheap food from, from elsewhere. And, you know, when you look ahead at things like the, the trade deals that we've, we've talked about on this podcast before with Australia and, and New Zealand, they've got quite devastating consequences, haven't they, for a lot of British farmers? 
Well, they're, they're very good deals for Australia and New Zealand because they've got open access to the most prized food market in the world. So I, I do feel that we, we gave it away for, for nothing. This really is a, a prized market. And I believe, you know, we, we should have, um, I guess, been more ambitious for this country with the deal that we wanted. And another huge concern would be our trading relationship with our closest trading partner. I mean, the British Poultry Council reported last week that for their members in this country, um, exports are down 85 million for British poultry exports into the EU. And of course, the EU has got open access to our market. It has got pretty much exactly the same deal as it had before. We have not. We have, as exporters into the EU, we have got all the costs, all the inspections. Um, we're now being told, Jacob Rees-Mogg last week, that there's going to be a new ecosystem of trust between industry and government. We have no idea what that looks like going forward. Reciprocity is, is key in all of this. You know, trade is about fairness. And the worry that I would have is the government here has an ambition to raise standards of animal welfare, of environmental protection above the EU, way above the EU. And they have no plans to make sure that those imports are produced to the same standards. Mm. So that does one thing that just puts farmers here out of business. And I, I find it extraordinary. It's fine if you want to do that. Farmers here, we have really high standards of animal welfare and are very proud of it. But it's unfair to raise those standards and not expect the same of other countries. So that's the perfect storm and the lack of, of um, resolving our relationship with the European Union and adding cost to farmers in this country. Yes, and I wanted to ask about a couple of other aspects from that as well. And you, you know, you 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 talked about pigs and and the strains that that industry has been under, but also fruit picking. I mean, there's there's there are immigration issues, aren't there, that are unresolved really from the from the from us leaving the the EU. There's also a concern, I, I guess, for for your members in terms of the new subsidies regime and how things that were promised or, or, or things that were alluded to haven't really worked out in those directions. Are those, those are big concerns too, right? Labour's a, a massive, massive issue. I mean, seasonal workers, we've been the most desired destination for seasonal work out of the whole of the EU. Um, we've been exemplars effectively in, in running that seasonal scheme. So for people to come here, they live... Uh, on farm, they, they have communities effectively, shops, um, cinemas, a, a community base on the farm, and they harvest uh, the fruit and vegetables. There are some British workers, but very, very few on the whole, partly because of location. I mean, to give you an example of that, in Herefordshire, we, we produce a huge amount of our strawberries, our asparagus, our apples, pears. In Herefordshire, they have a requirement for over two and a half thousand seasonal workers to pick and harvest those crops. And they have less than 500 people unemployed. So a lot of this is about location. And so pulling up the drawbridge on access to seasonal work here has meant that we have seen fruit and veg rotting in the fields. I think growers are really concerned as they go into this year. A lot of Ukrainians have come here in the past. Obviously, they have gone back to fight. They won't be coming back. We're, we've been unwelcoming, quite honestly. People are nervous about coming here to work because they feel that they are not welcome to work here. Um, 
it's highly regulated. The wage for seasonal workers has been set actually above the national living wage here. So, so people from abroad are being paid more. I think that is challenging and growers are very much saying to me, actually, we can't do that. We've got to make sure British people are paid the same. So we need an, an immigration policy that is fit for purpose, that actually does what is needed. And at the moment, there is a growing challenge around the picking of our fruit, vegetables and flowers and also in our processing outlets. And I know people in the care sector and hospitality and other areas are feeling exactly the same. Yes. And on subsidies, what's happening there? So the whole focus of the new thinking has been this word public monies for public goods. Bizarrely, they have never recognised food as being a public good. So trees, hedges, all really important things are are recognised as public goods. But food has not been recognised as a public good. Now, food security absolutely is a public good. It is recognised by every economist out there as being a public good. So the focus is very much on environmental delivery, paying farmers to deliver things for the environment, but not having any policy involved in food production. And the danger when you have targets for house building, we're building houses on grade one land, for instance, you have targets for energy, you have targets for trees, you are going to have a lot less land on which to produce your food. All we are saying is we must have a balanced approach of our land use. We cannot forget about food production, but it's proving extremely challenging to get that fundamental conversation about food production as part of the new policy thinking. Farmers don't want subsidies. I wanna be really clear on that. They want to earn a fair return out of the market. They don't expect to be propped up by subsidies, but it's been a a part of food production in the past. It's been what has kept food affordable. We've got a real opportunity to drive a global change now in how we produce high quality, sustainable food that really is going to deal with the challenges of climate change. That's what I've been focused. That's why we committed as a union to achieving net zero in food production, the first Uh, country that has said they are up for doing that by 2040 beating the government's target they just really do need to work with us and incentivize those changes by working with food producers and you mentioned uh, Denmark uh, 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 up at the top there are there any other lessons from from other EU countries on investment on the way that they're planning ahead that, that we can learn Oh, there are are good lessons and there are bad lessons. Mm. I mean, Sweden is a very interesting uh, lesson, actually, to to learn, particularly now, because Sweden back in the early 1990s was 95% self-sufficient in indigenous production. They then decided that they were going to raise their standards of animal welfare uh, and their environmental protection, believing the Swedish consumer would pay more for these goods and believing there would be a high value export market. And it was absolutely disastrous. Within 10 years, they'd gone to below 50% self-sufficiency in food production. And all that had happened was their exports had fallen and they'd imported a lot more German food. And ever since then, Sweden has been trying to reverse that situation and making sure that things like public procurement in their hospitals, that they are using uh, Swedish homegrown food. So that's I think very much a similar scenario to what we are walking into, making higher standards here and not knowing that there'll be a market for them. 
And I also think it's important to recognize that, you know, certainly Denmark, uh, the Netherlands, you know, they have high levels of self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency is purely a metric of food production. So in the Netherlands, you know, you'll find, I think they're about 400% self-sufficient. They're one of the largest exporters actually of, of agricultural goods, of flowers in the world. And it's a big part of their economy, but it's a metric. And often when I talk about, um, sort of a statutory underpinning of self-sufficiency here it's deemed as protectionism we should be exporting what we're not consuming here and when you have a grass-based system like we have in the UK we absolutely should be focusing on exporting what we're not consuming here and that needs investment and again I would highlight this as somewhere that the government has talked the talk uh, on exports and opportunities for agricultural exports, we've put very little investment in. So Australia, for instance, has farmer representatives. They have double the number of technical people on the ground across the world. You know, these are, are lessons that we should learn from Commonwealth countries and, and make sure that we do have thriving exports because we're gonna have a lot more imports. So there's a lot to learn from Europe, but there's a lot to learn from the rest of the world with, with how best you trade. Are you optimistic? Because I know the Prime Minister wants you to be optimistic, but there are, there are an awful lot of issues to unpack here from Ukraine, from, from, the, from the EU. And are your members feeling optimistic as well? Because obviously, you know, I think 60% of farmers were said to have voted for Brexit. Farming is a, you know, it's a, a, a natural constituency of the Conservative Party. But at your recent conference, George Eustace got a fairly rough ride from from you and, and from, from your members. Are you optimistic about all of this? And, and do you think um, do you think that, that some of your members are, are, are wondering whether the, the Conservative, whether the current government's really representing their interests? I don't think I've ever known. Bearing in mind, you know, all, all three things that have happened are massive in, yeah. in any period of time. So leaving the EU was always going to be a massive event. The global pandemic was unprecedented. And now the war in Ukraine and, and all within a six year period. So I can honestly say that I have never known farmers as worried as they are now. My neighbour, who's in his early 40s, he said to me a couple of weeks ago and he phoned up. He said, I so I'm petrified. He said, I've never felt like this. He said, I just do not know. I don't know whether wheat futures price is going to go next year. I don't know whether I can buy fertilizer next year. I don't know how much it's going to cost next year. I don't know whether I should be buying it now because I won't be able to get it next year. He said, I've never felt anything like this. So farmers right across the country uh, are feeling at the moment that this government is not going to work with them on the future of farming. They do feel that it's very much just focused on the environment. And for farmers, successful, profitable food producing businesses are at the heart of their ambition for the environment. Now, every farmer is an environmentalist. And if they're not an environmentalist, they need to be an environmentalist because you can't farm without healthy soil. You can't farm without a healthy environment but you ultimately need a government that really wants to work with you. So on food production, farmers feel let down by this government and things need to change. I've never known the temperature where it is now in rural Britain of enormous frustration. And there's an opportunity to change it, but at the moment, uh, I would say there's a lot of nervousness and there's a lot of anger that is building. 
Well, let's leave it there. Um, it's fascinating stuff. Our fingers are, are crossed uh, for you because for the industry, because of course it, it you know, it, it represents uh, so uh, so so much to us. Thank you so much for joining us, Minette. But it's absolutely fascinating. You can read uh, Minette on the dangers for food and farming in issue two ninety of the New European. That is out now uh, to get full digital access uh, to that piece and the rest of our archive. Take advantage of our offer for new subscribers. It's £1 a week digital, uh, £2 a week for print and digital at theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. So that's one bargain from the New European, something that you can get for free from us. Uh, our series one and two of Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives podcasts. They tell the life stories of remarkable Europeans in short 10-minute bites. Uh, a great European Lives podcast with Charlie Connolly, a superb listen, available where you got this podcast. Just search for Great European Lives podcast. And now it's time for the Hall of Shame, of course, where we put blowhard backbenchers, malevolent ministers, putrid pundits, things that get my goat generally um i don't know whether this is more uh pity than uh anger but uh patrick christie's from gb news is in the hall of shame and here's what patrick christie's said on the little watch channel on april the 29th rwanda goodness gracious me it's only gone and bloody worked hasn't it no channel crossings in the last nine days. It's not all down to wind direction or offshore conditions. This is down to the threat of being deported to Africa. And here is what Patrick Christie's said on the Little Watch Channel on uh, May the 3rd. When we had no crossings for 11 days, I was a bit too optimistic. It turned out it was all down to the wind direction and not the deterrent. If this Rwanda thing doesn't work, it could actually make the illegal channel crossings much much worse. Anne Widdicombe is in the Hall of Shame once again. In her terrible column, in the terrible Daily Express, she writes this. Am I the only old fogey who thinks calculators should be banned until the sixth form? To which the answer is, Anne, yes. Anne also appeared on GB News this week and she described Margaret Thatcher as the original leveller up. Well, I think the up bit is redundant there and if you're talking about leveled in the sense of demolition margaret thatcher certainly leveled the coal industry she leveled our stocks of social housing she leveled the uk's industrial base she leveled whole cities in the north uh, the great level i think we should call her nadine doris is also back in the hall of fame the hall of shame rather uh, asked to justify her crazy decision to privatize channel 4 she said this you know who's done really well since they were privatised a short number of years ago? Three years ago, it might have been five years, Channel 5. Uh, it's absolutely right, that, apart from the fact that Channel 5 has never been owned uh, by the country or the government. It's never been a public company. It's never been privatised. Uh, you can't expect Nadine Doris to know stuff like that. Of course, it's nothing to do with woke snowflakes. She must have downstream the wrong information. But, you know, after all, she's only the culture secretary. Where's the harm in it? Well, foremost in the Hall of Shame is someone we were talking about with Minette Batters. It's George Eustace, the Environment Secretary, who's been giving all of us POVs some good advice on how to deal with rising food costs. George Eustace said, generally speaking, what people find 
is by going for some sort of value brand rather than own branded products, they can actually contain and manage their household budget. Blimey, if only we'd all thought of that, eh? Uh, another way to do with rising costs is to claim nearly £195,000 a year in expenses, as George Eustace did last year. It's an awful lot of Tesco value cornflakes, George. And how am I dealing with rising food costs, you ask? It's easy. I'm just moving to Hartlepool, where the local Conservatives have made milk and honey free for everyone. Now, where's that monkey? That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to our producers, Ellie Longman-Rood and Matt Withers. A reminder of our special offer for new subscribers. If you go to the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast, you can join us for the great price of just £1 a week for digital or £2 a week for print and digital. That's the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. And talking of this podcast, if you don't want to miss an episode, you really should be subscribing. And, well, you do. Give us nice ratings and lovely reviews. Join the New Europeans uh, Facebook Readers Group, or you can follow us on Twitter, at The New European. You can follow me on Twitter, at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. And until the next time we meet, so long, snowflakes.